Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Coming to you for hardcore church planning. (laughs) Go hardcore, go home! You know I wanted to say it. (laughs) I said it for you, man. So uh, why don't you introduce our guest on this episode? We have Tim Ketchum today. He is uh, the author of The Permanent Revolution with Alan Hirsch and also The Permanent Revolution Playbook, which uh, we'll have Tim talk a little bit more about uh, in a few minutes. But also, he is the author of The Ultimate Pokemon Strategy Guide, Gotta Catch Them All. And uh, that was a little joke I played with his name right there. He didn't actually write that. But as you know, listening to uh, Hardcore Church Plan, we always make up books that people didn't actually write. But he did write Permanent Revolution with Alan Hirsch. He is actually responsible for the incredible diagrams all throughout that book. And uh, when when I was reading that book years ago, I was struck and I'm like, man, I felt like Nacho Libre. Like, you know, I wish I had those diagrams in my book. But uh, I was talking with Tim, and I'm like, man, those diagrams are awesome. He's like, thank you. And I'm like, oh, you wrote those. And he was like, yeah, man, I I made those up. So he is not only a mega brain. um, You have a doctorate, right? Uh, Not exactly. It's just a, uh, it's like a BS and Bible. Wow. You're smart anyway, smarter than, than Pete and I put together. But man, Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, anyways, um, Tim, tell us a little bit about how you came to faith and how you got involved in church planning, because you're also uh, a mentor to church planners, and you yourself have church planted. How did you come to faith, and how did you get involved in the world of church planning? Well, I guess the Reader's Digest version was I, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I actually grew up in the Church of Christ tribe. And uh, so I, I kind of had the, you know, Christian background, you know, went to church on Sundays and whatnot. But, um, you know, I never really did have a good experience with church. Um, re, you know, we the church we went to was actually a really, I guess, high income. It was in the Fairfax, Virginia area. So it was, you know, somewhat aristocratic in that way. And um, but we were actually I kind of I grew up in government housing. And so the economic contrast there, I think I didn't, I have a, I had a hard time negotiating that. Um, and as a kid, so, um, I got uh, sort of into a lot of trouble and I was basically a juvenile delinquent growing up. And my parents actually sent me off to a Christian boarding school when I was in high school. And, um, that was the first time I think I encountered, uh, some authentic Christian, people, or at least I had close enough proximity to them. Mm. Um, and uh, so it, it was kind of like salt and light, although I didn't really give my heart over to God at that time. Um, 
and then I went off to college and uh, up north in uh, the Detroit area uh, to play basketball and I sprained my ankle the first week of practice um, and uh, I found myself in my room um, during practice uh, uh, just reading the Bible. Um, there was a, a New Testament class I had to take, and um, the guy gave us a choice to read a book or two, and I chose Max Licato's book, God Came Near. And I was just fascinated by, um, you know, Jesus having zits and having a crush on girls down the street and farting, and I was just <laughs> like, man, I've never really thought about Jesus in that way. And so I started to read the Gospels, and that was sort of the beginning of a spiritual awakening for me. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, the, kind of fast forwarding there, um, I, uh, transferred down to a college down in Montgomery, Alabama, and there were some guys down there who were getting together a team, um, to plant a church down in, uh, the inner city of Montgomery, Alabama. And so, you know, the history there, you know, is quite riveting of sort of the racial divides and racial tensions and whatnot. And so, um, you know, those guys said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we pick the most roughest, most, uh, you know, challenging neighborhood, which is right at the, at the core of downtown area. They've actually bulldozed it now, but it was called Trim court. And so I was like, no way, man, these guys are totally trying to tackle something really big in our city. And so I ended up locking arms with them and, uh, you know, out of a team effort, um, we planted the church down there, and uh, so it was kind of a, uh, um, you know, we kind of networked the city, um, and we did a bus ministry down there, and they used volunteers from local churches, and then we did Bible studies in the neighborhood, and, you know, my office was the neighborhood down there. That's where I went every day to work. Uh, played it's awesome. Kids, all that kind of stuff, so. I actually met a guy from that church plant. I have family in, in Montgomery, and I met a guy oh, yeah. named Daniel, who was uh, I I don't I don't know his last name, but my mom knew him. She's like, hey, he's involved with the church plant downtown, and uh, you got to meet him. So, anyways, we'll have to talk about that afterwards. But uh, yeah. I might know yeah, some people you know. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool, man. Small world. So tell me what led to you, uh, first off, how did you end up uh, writing with Alan and what led you to writing uh, The Permanent Revolution? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a weird scenario because uh, somebody actually gave me the book, The Shaping of Things to Come, um, when I was down in Montgomery, but I just put it on my shelf um, and I didn't read it. And then I moved up to Clarksville here. and. Uh, I think about a year into Clark, so I looked at it, I was like, you know, when I, just, I got bored and I pulled it down off the shelf and I started reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, I think this is kind of, you know, m most of the people that give feedback to Alan say, you're saying some new stuff, but some stuff I think you're just giving words to things that we intuitively already knew, but nobody was actually packaging it and no one yeah. was actually saying it. Right. And, um, so... You know, the fivefold thing was something that sort of awakened in me. It's like, man, I think I might be an apostle, but in uh, in my tribe, that, that would be heretical. In fact, there have been guys in my tribe who said they were apostles and they got kicked out. Um, a guy named Don Finto actually uh, used to be Church of Christ, and then he um, had that awakening. And, um, you know, so uh, 
so basically, man, just on that discovery, I said, man, if, if that's if that's my vocation, then maybe I should try to find out everything I need, you know, there is to know about it. So I just kind of launched into this big tailspin of going down the rabbit hole of looking into things about entrepreneurship, innovation, uh, design systems, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just started accumulating all this stuff. And I was like, man, somebody needs to write a book on this, you know, like mm -hmm. somebody needs to like articulate this. And so I felt like the Lord kind of said, well, why don't you write the book that you want to read? Um, and so, you know, it, it, it wasn't like a Damascus Road experience or anything like that, but it was just a sense that you're, you're supposed to write this book. Um, and so I started writing it and eventually I sent Alan a copy of, it was about a third of the way done. And I sent him a copy and I was like, man, if this thing's going to get published, I'm going to have to have somebody's name on it, you know, cause I probably don't stand a chance. Um, just cold Turkey walking up to a publisher. So I sent him a copy and said, Hey, would you write the forward to it? And he said, yes. And so I was like, man, that's like my second wind, you know, to keep writing. Um, and then about a year later, he contacted me and he said, hey, why don't we think about co-authoring on it? I could get it published. And um, so we began to put our heads together and uh, we kind of extended the topic. The, the original topic of the book I was working with was sort of like the apostolic, uh, the relational terrain of apostolic ministry and looking at mm. power, power dynamics and authority. And um, so we we broadened the book uh, significantly and. Um, about halfway through writing it with Alan, uh, Alan suggested, why don't we invite Mike Breen in on it and uh, why don't we front load the book with fivefold so that people don't think we're giving too much emphasis and too much priority to the apostolic function um, and isolated away from the rest of the five. Um, and so we decided to, you know, invite him in on the project, and he tr he contributed a lot by way of concepts, uh, you know, imagination. So, all right, I didn't know he was actually involved in that book. Yeah, yeah, we actually went down there and hung out with him down there in Polly's Island for a day, and uh, we just kind of, you know, poked him and see what came out. And uh, he had a lot of a lot of really. Actually, probably one of the biggest things he contributed was the concept of the prophetic ministry being primarily um, having an incarnational impulse. Um, I decided I want to go to Mike Breen's house. I saw a picture <laughs> of the, uh, a leadership meeting he did recently there, and I'm like, I, I want to go move in with, with, with Mike. He yeah. has a nice house. <laughs> yeah, it's a it, it's a pretty cool spot that they're living in there in Paulie's, you know, on the beach and all that. So yeah, North Carolina, yo. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So tell me a bit about because I think this is such an excellent idea. When I wrote Church Zero, cha-ching, you have to you don't have to do that obviously because we're we've asked you to come on here and talk <laughs> about this. But um, when I wrote Church Zero, cha-ching, uh, basically, um, after I wrote it, people asked the next natural question, which was, okay, I get what you're saying, right? But how do you get your church to that? Because permanent revolution is like comprehensive. I always tell people uh, that Church Zero is like the stupid man's guide to the same topic. Um, but but. <laughs> You could use Permanent Revolution. It's so well written. It's actually like a comprehensive textbook. It, it is just, it explores every aspect of the subject. That's what I love about it. But what I love is you guys wrote the playbook, which is kind of saying, 
how do we get there? And and if I'm not mistaken, because I've got a copy of it in my hand right now, um, it it actually is designed to take a group, like almost a transformative group on on this transformative journey. Um, tell me how that looks. Yeah. So the um, that's really kind of you, by the way. I appreciate you saying that. Um, the uh, so the the playbook is basically like a seven week um, exploration. Um, and we published it through Missio. So if you've ever been through a primer uh, with Missio, like the TK primer or the Gospel primer or whatnot, uh, it's written in the same format. And so um, it's designed for small groups, but it's also designed for leadership teams. And we kind of had to straddle the fence there, be, you know, to kind of widen the market, as it were, because uh, we didn't want to write something just for small groups, because we felt like if you don't embed this into the leadership of the community, then you end up creating a lot of rogue, you know, maverick type groups, you know, in your church and whatnot. We didn't want that to happen. So um, it's basically a six week process, man, where you there's something to do every single day of the week. Um, and so you if you start start out on Monday, there's like a, you know, day one point one um, week, one day one week, one day two. Uh, and it goes for six weeks and it pretty much unpacks, you know, detailed definitions, how to process these giftings in, in a group setting. So it's not just like personality profiles, like, hey, what's your gifting and diving into that. It's about how do we live this out in a group, in community, um, on mission. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a question that comes up is people say, okay, I recognize these roles now. But what does that look like? Like, what does the apostle do? You know, what is the evangelist, you know, in the day-to-day, boil it down to brass tacks? This is what people ask me at, at the end of Church Zero. And so when I saw this book come out, I was like, man, that's genius. Because it's the same thing. Once people get the theory, they want the practice. And that's what this book is aimed at. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, some of the practical things, I think, in looking at APEST um, in group settings is that um, you first of all have to be self-aware. You have to know what your own gifting is, and then you have to be aware of what other people's giftings are. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if that's the first step, then the second step would then be able uh, to start appreciating what each person brings to the table. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, these kind of offer interpretive lenses for us to interpret one another and to say, well, the thing that you've been doing that kind of gets on my nerves, well, maybe that's actually a gift. Maybe that's Absolutely. something that is actually supposed to be in my face. Maybe that's supposed <laughs> to be a part of the equation. And maybe I'm just kind of wanting to make the group like me or I'm wanting everyone to be like me. And really, the beauty of the body is that everyone's not alike. And if we get into cloning each other and wanting everyone to sort of go in the same direction and look the same way, think the same way, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a recipe for toxicity, you know? So for example, like the, uh, the, the shepherds and the teachers, they totally get each other, right? Like, you know, they're the conservatives in the bunch usually, you know, I mean, the, the shepherd might be working drug and alcohol and working with some of the most grotty people you've ever recovery folk. And he may not seem conservative, you know, he might actually be like, you know, an ex ex con and, so like in our context, um, on our leadership, our shepherd is just what I described, but he's more in the conservative role, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. he's always going to be a check and balance 
to the apostolic guy who's like, you know, let's get as radical as we can and run out there and, you know, um, completely get out in the community. And, and he's going to be like, whoa, 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 what about, you know, the, the, the taking the people with us? And so you naturally find that guys, it's not that you don't get away, get along, um, personality wise or temperament wise, your temperament might be the same, but your role is different as, as an apostolic leader or an evangelist or, you know, whatever it is. And so I like the fact that you're highlighting that maybe you get under each other's skin, but it's literally because Jesus is pulling you in a different direction as maybe this other role. Um, what kind of, what kind of, uh, have you found have been some of the combinations of guys who work very well together versus some of those roles that are challenging to work together. So in a church planning scenario, for example, I might, I might be planting with the teacher and I'm apostolic. Um, what, what might be some of the tensions there? What might help that? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's a, there's definitely inherent tensions at some point in the journey between all the giftings. Um, and so, you know, if you think about APES as sort of like a continuum with pioneers more towards the apostolic side and then settlers more to the teacher side, I think there's always an inherent tension between pioneers and settlers. Um, mm -hmm. Now, my own experience is that I tend to have sort of a love-hate relationship with the prophetic type people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, even... Even some of the people that I've worked with that I'm close to, they trust me, they know my heart, I know their heart. Um, I think a lot of times the prophetic side, um, they're very leery of uh, putting too much emphasis on human agency or on what we do. And as a result of that, um, they tend to have some natural aversions to, to structure, to strategy, um, even systems, um, because the the impression that can be left oftentimes when you get done strategizing or creating a system is that you can suddenly take your hands off of it and it will do the work for you. And right. for a prophetic person, that's, that's really annoying because it's, it, uh, it, it basically in their mind, it pushes God to the sideline and it says, Oh, so now we can be successful because you've got this really cool strategy or because we mapped it all out on the whiteboard. Um, and it's that proverbial question, well, where's God in that, you know? Um, mm. So I think, I think that inherent tension between apostles and prophets is healthy because, the, you know, apostles can be overly reliant on their strategies and on their, yes. you know, their ability to kind of systematize and create processes and stuff that you do need to take your hands off of so that you can yeah. move on or you can let other people move in. Um, and, yeah. and just to, to kind of throw out there, a great example of that would be like um, John Wesley, right? Where um guy was extremely apostolic and yet very systematic, right? He was one of yeah. the most systematic thinkers. We've, you know, strategizers, organizers. I mean, one of the, the, uh, uh, the greatest gifts that Wesley had was this ability to um, really administrate this this movement which was clearly a move of the holy spirit i mean god was totally in it so when when people try to pit this organic growth against like you know uh organization yeah. you just you just pull out the wesley card and flop it down and go well hey explain that then right yes. i mean he was he was the example of a guy that was just had the gift of administration 
but was part at the same time of, of this organic revival that, that broke out. Yeah, it's a great example. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think maybe some tensions, I think, between pioneers and settlers may a lot of times have to do with speed. Um, so, for example, your more pioneering people like to move faster. Um, yeah. And then the settlers, of course, end up wanting to go slower. Mm. And, uh, you know, I I tend to default, and I haven't always done this in my own leadership. I had to learn the hard way um, because, you know, in my own way of leading in the past, I've often gone too fast, and then not enough people were hanging with me, and then I would turn around and demonize them and mm. say, well, you know, you guys just need to speed up. You need to get over it. You need to, you know come on, we're talking about God here. We're talking about people out there being lost and whatnot. But really what needed to happen is I needed to slow down and work with people and walk with people as they go on the mission with me. Yeah. Um, but the same can be said for the more settling types, you know, is that a lot of times they don't like that sense of spontaneity, that sense of chaos. And so part of that stretching and part of that maturing that takes place in within fivefold is when I allow myself to submit to you um, and then you in turn submit to me. Yeah. And so when there's that mutual submission within the fivefold, I think um, it doesn't allow anyone to, to, you know, play the trump card of, no, I don't like that. And you're going too fast. Well, maybe I need to open myself up to going a little bit faster. Um, I think the idea of a pioneer and a settler is such a helpful distinction. I've ne- I didn't think about it in those terms until you guys brought it out like that. But I always kind of thought radicals, conservatives. But because we're talking about kingdom expansion, um, holding ground versus taking it, it's a really helpful uh, set of labels to put on it. But one of the things you bring up, and I, I find this fascinating, is the evangelist has... He's kind of like the middleman. You want to talk about that a little bit? He's he's not quite pioneer and he's not quite settler. Kind of kind of break that down for us a little bit. Yeah, it's a good question, man. Um, I I tend to understand evangelists from the standpoint of like the relational entrepreneur, um, and because they're so keen and so aware of uh, where people are in relation to them, but then also they have this gift of wooing people and actually uh, inviting them to come closer and they're they're typically very persuasive in inviting people uh, to join them or to come to places where they otherwise wouldn't go and so the evangelist is often the guy who has one foot in the community and one foot out of the community Um, because they're kind of like the gatekeeper they they sort of facilitate two-way traffic between the church and its context um, and so when it comes to leading the church, because they're so relationally astute, they tend not to go too fast to where, you know, they, they tend to pick up on signals quicker that people are not actually hanging with them and that right. maybe there's some relational conflict, maybe there's tension. They pick up on that and actually bothers them because they're integrators. Um, they prefer to have people close together. And so when they perceive that people are pulling away or they're digging their heels in, um, they can go into that persuasive mode and try to find out a creative way of helping people move along. I think apostolic types tend to be less aware um, of that relational dynamic, Mm -hmm. um, and which is why they need 
you know, the other giftings in a team setting to do church planting. Um, but uh, real, real quick, Tim, um, it, it's funny because we, we've been on this interview and, and just for those that maybe haven't been listening to our podcast for a long time, we're talking off of Ephesians chapter four. That is the um, basis scripture that permanent revolution is, is discussing It's these five rules of Ephesians four. Maybe you thought that those roles ended uh, with the canon scripture being completed. These guys give a great argument for why that is not the case, why these five roles are still needed, why the apostolic role is maybe not the same as, um, you know, the 12, the 12 or the 12. But these guys talk about the roles that are still needed to expand the kingdom of God. And the apostle becomes uh, a sent out one, literally in the Greek means sent out one. And so the term is used for Timothy, um, Titus, uh, multi- multiple other guys, Silas. Um, you know, th- there's a list of, of a whole host of guys, nine specifically that are called that in the Greek. But, um, but, but going off from that, Tim, before we end, will you summarize kind of the five roles and, you know, just a little bit? Because we've been talking a little bit about the apostle and the evangelist. Can you kind of in the prophet, but can you just kind of summarize each of the roles and um, or the giftings and uh, just give people kind of a flavor? Maybe we should have done that at the beginning, but um, I I love the way you're packaging this. Yeah, yeah, sure, man. Um, well, the apostle, like you say, is the, the sent one, the one who's sent, and I tend to use two words to describe each each gifting. And so the apostle is the one who is sent and extends. And those two words kind of highlight the more Pauline versus the Petrine mode of apostleship. So the one who is sent is the more Pauline. In other words, they leave the organization, they leave the center and go out towards the edge. Um, The one who extends actually stays at the center, but they mobilize the organization to move towards the edge. Mm. And so they're, they're good at mobilizing people to go on mission, whereas the Pauline tends not to be as savvy with the organizational dynamics um, and the, the more slower evolutionary process of doing mission. Their Pauline tends to be more revolutionary, uh, which means they have less tolerance for change management and you know all that kind of thing. Uh, the prophet is the one who questions and reforms. Um, the, the prophet uh, is intimately uh, aware of God. Um, but they're also aware of the present reality. And it, another way of saying that is that they're aware of how things should be and they're aware of how things actually are. And that creates tension in them um, so much so that they feel uh, moved to actually question, well, why, why do they have to be the way they are? Um, why can't they be like this? And so they often question the status quo. Um, they call things out. Um, they're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine that they're often the first ones to actually pick up on uh, things that have gone bad. Um, but they're also reformers. And so some some prophets just they're just provocateurs. They're just provocative communicators, demonstrators. But then there's some prophets who are actually reformers and they actually come up with ways to fix the problem. So mm. they're actually fixers. Um, right. And. Uh, then you've got the evangelist, um, uh, which, you know, uh, backing up here, I mean, the, the literal definition for prophet is uh, the first one to speak. Hmm. 
um, which is the idea of the canary in the coal mine, that they're first ones um, to actually speak something, which is so, somewhat their pioneering quality. They're the first ones. Um, the evangelist is, you know, of course, means good messenger. Um, and so I tend to see them as those who invite and recruit. Um, and so they're the ones who, they're kind of like the bee that leaves the beehive and they go out and gather pollen and they bring it back to the hive. Um, they tend to be more monocultural as apostles being multicultural. Um, they don't like going too far from uh, the hive, in other words. Mm. Um, the uh, shepherd is actually uh, the one who protects and provides. And so if you can think about that image of the shepherd in the Old Testament, they had both a rod and a staff. Um, and so some shepherds are very nurturing. They're looking to provide for the group. But not all shepherds are like, you know, come cry on their shoulder types. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you were a shepherd back in the day, you had to fight off animals. But you also had to fight off other shepherds who wanted to come and take your sheep and sell them in the marketplace. Hmm. Um, so there's actually a lot of police officers that are shepherds. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, what's the, uh, uh, you know, their model is to serve and protect. Yeah. Right. That's protection. Yeah. Um, and then you got the teacher who explains and trains. And so the teacher is not just a guy who is into theology and philosophy and whatnot. There's also teachers that are actually trying to train people to learn new skills. So kind of like the football coach, you know, I mean, most football coaches are not into philosophy, but they're really into training people. Um, and so I think the teacher definition has to be broadened uh, beyond just the, the book head guy. Um, That's awesome. Who, yeah. And you've got a training uh, course that lasts for six months um, called the APEST Immersion. Um, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, you know, the playbook is sort of like something you can do in your small group or leadership team, but we realize APEST has a little bit of complexity to it. There's a lot of moving parts when you start adding five moving parts into the equation. Mm. And so we wanted to create a training experience, not only for existing churches, but for church planters as well. Yeah. Um, to say, if you want to integrate these five ministries into your church and into your leadership team, um, why don't you let us come in and do like a one day with your staff or with your team? Um, and then we do twice a month coaching calls for six months where we go in depth into the giftings. Also, how do you integrate that into organization? Um, how do you create equipping tracks? Um, so each gift can start to equip the rest of the body so it can mature. Mm. Um, and then we ended up with a, a, a one day intensive, um, to kind of wrap up and, uh, shore up loose ends and whatnot. Well, that is really helpful. And your, uh, your summaries. I mean, just sitting here right now, I was like drinking through a fire hose. You gave me some helpful stuff that I had never, ever thought about. And, you know, like I said, I mean, this is, you guys have written what I consider to be the comprehensive guide to uh, these roles. I mean, it, it was kind of like no stone was left unturned, but even having read uh, the book, that's my train. Hold on. Nice. <laughs> I, I have a train, an entourage. It salutes me daily. So, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, that said, I mean, that is just good, good stuff. I couldn't think of, of 
someone better than 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 yourself to to learn under. Um, it's just, I mean, your summary is mind blowing. So go check that out at apestimmersion.com, and you guys can learn how to sign up. Pete, you got anything? You know, I just have one uh, final question. It's a question that I know all of our listeners are going to have on their mind after listening to this interview, um, Tim, and that is. If uh, you and Alan Hirsch were to get into a fist fight, who do you think would win between the two of you? <laughs> well, um, I often joke around and people ask me, like, you know, they say, well, who who wrote what in the uh, permanent rev? And I say, it was kind of like Batman and Robin. <laughs> and, and they say, well, who's Batman and who's Robin? And I say, well, I'm 6'4", and I think he's 5'3", uh, or something, so I'll let you do the math on that. <laughs> Um, and so obviously I think, uh, you know, you do the he's probably quicker than I am, but I'm a bit taller, <laughs> but you've got the right reach. On, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got the reach. Yeah. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, you know, it's, uh, we're glad that you wrote it, man. We're really glad you guys wrote that book and, um, it's, it's been helpful. I use it in some of the, the courses that I've taught, um, at university level it really makes a great textbook. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also readable. It's not boring at all. So um, thanks for writing that, man. And uh, thanks for coming on today. It's been great having you on. This has been Tim Ketchum. And uh, he is the co-author with Alan Hirsch of Permanent Revolution. Anything else you want to add today, Tim? No, man. Thanks for having me on. You guys do great work, man. I'm so glad you guys crank this stuff out. So. All right. Well, man, yeah, likewise. And uh, back to the Batcave with you. <laughs> You're not going to do your outro? Are you trying to avoid no. it? You're trying to avoid it like the plague, aren't you? Back to the bat cave is where I'll leave it. And remember, <laughs> and so if you're called the plant, <laughs> say it. Say it. You won't get me there, brother. Go hardcore. Listening. Go home. You ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.